Oscar Brown Jr. was a close friend and someone admired for his art across the world. He made the world laugh and sing and sometimes cry or cringe, but he never left us alone. Oscar always stood on the side of the oppressed and never feared the consequences. He died on May 29, 2005. At the time, I told myself that I would celebrate Oscar's life at the end of every year by running the following interview I did with him. So enjoy an hour of conversation with the late Oscar Brown Jr. Breaking up big rocks on a chain gang Breaking rocks and saving my time Breaking rocks I tear on a chain gang Cause I've been convicted of crime Hold it steady right there while I hit it Hurt that reckon that ought to get it Been working and working But I still got so terrible long to go that was Work Song from Oscar Brown Jr., one of the first songs that Oscar ever put lyrics to and one of the first songs of his that I ever heard. And it's a song I'm hoping that if you haven't heard it before, we'll also introduce you to the work of Oscar Brown Jr. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate, and this is a special show today. First off, I want to say uh, Happy New Year to everybody that's listening today. And I want to say, you know, as people know, people who are regular listeners, or if you're just tuning in for the first time, one of the driving forces behind this show is the idea that the world cries out. When you look at everything that's been going on, the world does cry out for radical change. And this show hopes to be, tries to be part of the process of bringing that radical change into being. It tries to engage with all the big ideas, with all the things not just in politics, but in science, in culture, in art, in music, in human life. And so with that in mind, as I was trying to put together a show for today, I thought a few years back I did a show that was a very special show for me. It was an interview I did with Oscar Brown Jr. And this was a couple of years before Oscar died. We spent an hour together talking about his life, his work, his art, you know, Oscar, Oscar was a, a man who created art that told stories of the lives of black people. He was one of the giants of jazz, theater, poetry, songwriting. And his stories, like I said, he told stories of the lives of black people. But at the same time, he explored in his art many of the universals that actually contribute to the humanity in each of us. Now, a whole lot of people credit Oscar with being one of the major inspirations for the development of hip-hop today. And he was always very proud of that. But he was a jazz vocalist and a songwriter, a playwright, poet, and actor. That's how he spent his life in a career that spanned more than 50 years. He wrote more than a thousand songs, recorded at least a dozen albums, toured with just about every great jazz musician you can name. He penned dozens of operas and plays. He wrote adaptations of Greek tragedies. And he wrote literally thousands of poems on every subject imaginable. And as if that wasn't more than enough, Oscar also hosted and helped develop two television series that centered on jazz. And Oscar was always ready to fight whenever and wherever he found injustice. And when he died, the world became a little bit sadder place. Oscar Brown Jr. was a good friend, and I think of him often this time of year, so I thought I'd share this interview with all of you today maybe reacquaint some of you with him and perhaps introduce others to the one and only Oscar Brown. And in doing this, I firmly believe 
that Oscar and his work were one of those things, he was one of those people and his art was one of those things that can, in fact, help to bring us to a radically different world. So with having said that, let's jump into the interview. Today's a day where I want to have a special show. And in thinking about that, there was one person I definitely wanted to just share the whole hour with and share him with you. And that's Oscar Brown Jr. Joining me here in studio today is Oscar Brown Jr. Oscar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael Slate. Here's a guy who's, as you often said, a living legend, barely living. (laughs) (laughs) Hanging on. Hanging on, right. My body is sending me death threats. (laughs) How'd that feel? (laughs) You're not going to bend the big one. (laughs) Just for people who don't know, Oscar's written, what, probably about 300 songs? Maybe more. Well, more than that. Yeah. Over a dozen plays, written operas, Mm -hmm. countless, countless poems. I know personally that you're a man whose mind just never stops working because the first thing I remember a couple years ago, you called me out one day and said, I've just decided to dig into gravity. And about a month later, you handed me a disc that had about 300 pages of treatises on gravity, you know, and the development of the universe. And then just about a month ago, we talked on the phone and you said... For the last two months, I've been writing Shakespearean sonnets, 140 of them to be exact. <laughs> the contributions you've made to culture, to the, to the struggle of the people, bringing out the history of black people in America and the struggle against repression, to bring out the tales of humanity have been tremendous. And I'm really, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. The sonnets that I've been writing have been really around the, the whole question of citizenship of black people in this country, because that's a hoax. I've started probing into why, when they said free, why didn't we leave? And what was the advantage in staying here? I mean, in the spirit of, say, Harriet Tubman or Denmark Vesey or Nat Turner, why didn't we figure out some way to go somewhere? The pilgrims who came here to escape oppression from England, they didn't have any housing over here. They didn't know anybody. They didn't have a clue. They would come into a total wilderness, but they had the nerve to come. Black people here are living in the land of the free and the home of the brave without the bravery to be free. And that's pissed us off with ourselves and each other. And uh, I think that's why we're largely dispirited and tend to scowl a lot and, and not get up because we haven't really accepted the challenge that a free people have to accept. You have to have a choice. And if you don't have a choice, you have to make yourself a choice. You can't become the citizen of a free country with no choice. That's nonsense. What you're saying here now is the kind of thing that's infused your work from the very beginning. And one of the first things you did was the Negro, what was it, Negro News Front? Mm-hmm. What was that? <laughs> well, it was way back when we were Negroes. <laughs> back in the uh, 40s, late 40s, I started doing a newscast that was based on the things that occurred that affected Negro and it was one people. And it was one of the first to actually talk about It was the first, yeah. I'm sure. I, I can't recall ever hearing of another that preceded it or even uh, was at the same time. Vernon Jarrett, who's still writing columns for the Chicago Defender and has been with the New uh, Tribune and the Sun-Times in Chicago, he was my first news writer. I would do the feature stories, and he would just call through all kinds of papers. He'd look at the Associated Press from day to day. He'd get the Tribune. He'd get out-of-town papers at Pittsburgh. Courier and uh, the West Coast paper here, the Sentinel, the Los Angeles uh, Sentinel. And whatever was of significance, he put together a newscast. That's the first time I began hearing of uh, the Union of South Africa. Jan Tui Smuts was the uh, premier head of uh, Forward who brought in apartheid. So this was back in that period of time. And my program was pretty outspoken. I was to the left of just about everything. 
on the air at the time, and I was constantly getting kicked off, constantly being about three or four times. They would send me a wire saying, your last broadcast was your last broadcast. You know, we aren't going to let you talk that stuff on the air, not on our air. One time I was critical of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People because I thought they were Tomish. Oh, and Walter White, who was the uh, executive secretary, was advising black people to use bleaching cream as a solution to the uh, color question, which is altogether absurd. Uh, another point, I was critical of the DuPont Chemical Company at the time when they were building a Savannah River project down in South Carolina and it moved out a whole bunch of black sharecroppers and poor people and weren't giving them any of the jobs to construct this huge Savannah River dam project. And I made some critical comment that they were warmongers and they sent back from Wilmington, Delaware, to this little local station I was doing in Chicago, and the station wouldn't let me on the air. I went to the library, and I found out from my research, I wrote another editorial about the DuPont Chemical Company. I had no idea what warmongers they were, how much money they made. I mean, I was just talking about stuff in general. But when I went to the congressional record, here was a study by um, the Senate Small Business Committee, which was headed at the time by Senator Truman, who was later to become the president of the United States. And they just said that, you know, these guys had enormously improved their capital position as a result of World War II. Of course, then later, what Eisenhower was to come along and say the thing we had to worry about was the military-industrial complex, and obviously his warning came too late. You, you had all this controversy on your radio station. Then you went through, you got you ended up getting kicked out of the Army for being a little bit later, like 10 years later or something, getting kicked out of the Army for being a communist. Well, I was taken in the Army to get kicked out of ah, the okay. Army. I mean, I was 28 years old when they drafted me, and the normal age at that point was 26. But I had had a hernia up until I was about 27 years old. I had finally bothered me to the point where I got an operation, so now I no longer was physically unfit. So they just wanted to mess with you. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I had been running for office. I had ah. run for state legislature, and I'd run for the Congress, and they wanted to make sure that I didn't have the kind of record that could stand up to a political campaign. Mm -hmm. But by that time, I was out of—I was over running for po political office. Right, and that was at the height of McCarthyism and stuff, too, right? Definitely. Yeah, because yeah, uh, there was a headline in the papers. I was on the train going down to Camp Chaffee in Arkansas saying that— uh, McCarthy had scored some victory over the Army, and I was going into the Army. I was really nervous about all mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to get into is that sort of soon after that, you're out of the Army. You took a couple jobs working for your dad in real estate, some union organizing. And then eventually, though, what you were doing on the side became your life. You started to work. You started. To, you were writing plays, and you started to work, write songs. In the I so started doing that in the Army, Michael, mm -hmm. because just to keep them going crazy. It sort of as a hobby. Mm -hmm. I would write some stuff. I had... Had that as a hobby, and as a teenager, girl would break my heart. I'd write a heartbroken song. But now in the army, I began to write "Call of the City" and a whole bunch of others. You were "Call of the City" in the army. Mm -hmm. Oh wow, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, "Summer in the City" around that time. I, I was um, very busy doing mm -hmm. that. I was trying to write a play at the same time called "Be the Proud Owner." <laughs> I would organize my script in the typewriter. So I was a clerk in the flag office when the company commander came in, I could see him. He'd disappear around the corner so that I could take my play out and then substitute his work. 
All right. <laughs> well, you folks that are working in offices right now, remember that. It's a good way to go. Well, I always knew when I got in the Army, I knew they were watching me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they put a flag, what they call a flag, on my order saying that I was to, uh, had refused to take the loyalty oath and that uh, I was to be held at the lowest pay grade and not uh, transferred without special permission and all. So I knew somebody's watching me. Mm-hmm. And I always uh, played it like that. If I wanted to get something to the company commander, I'd just say it in the barracks around. I didn't have to know who was going to tell it. But there would always be a response that would let me know that my pipeline was open. When we opened the show, we opened it up with Work Song, mm-hmm. which was sort of the first song that you did. It came to sort of define a motif in your work. It's sort of a style, a way that you actually approached your work. You took Cannonball Adderley's song and you put wrote lyrics to it. Mm-hmm. Well, t- why don't you tell us a little bit about that? How did that happen? Well... Interestingly enough, I went to Cannonball. I was going around to various singers and instrumentalists at that time. This was back in the uh, late 50s. And asking them if they had something to which I could put a lyric or if you as a singer could sing a song that didn't exist, what kind of song would it be? Could I bring that into being? I had asked that question of Abby Lincoln, and she had asked me to write something about Max Roach. And so I was so crazy about Abby Lincoln, I wrote something about Max Roach. (laughs) <laughs> quick to you know, hurry up and write something. And they recorded it. Max and Abby recorded this song called Strong Man, and Cannonball heard it. I want to remind listeners that you're tuned into the Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate. This is a special rebroadcast of an interview I did a number of years back with jazz singer and songwriter, poet and playwright, Oscar Brown Jr. So when I approached Cannonball, he said, hey, yeah, Oscar, I was just introducing myself. Yeah, he said, I heard Strong Man. So I had that to kind of he wasn't the first, but he was among the first that I asked that question, and they went up on the stand and they played work song. And I dug it so much, I just I had to wait a month, I think, before this, the uh, album came out, uh, Them Dirty Blues. And on that, I also found That Dare and Janine. So that album was a treasure trove for me. Wow, yeah. Then you went on and you did things with somebody like, for instance, somebody that you would think if you walked up to and said, yo, I want to put some lyrics to your songs, mm-hmm. that they might have said, what? Miles. I mean, it was really interesting that Afro Blue. Well, no, all blues. All blues, all blues, blues, that's it, yeah. Yeah. Um, How did that happen? Let's see, in about 66, we did a show in Chicago called Summer in the City. And uh, one of the, it was based on the poetry of a friend of mine named Kent Foreman that sort of was the thread that tied this whole musical review together. And on one of his numbers called Night Train, he used... Uh, all blues as the background. So I was quite familiar with that and loved it. And I was just taken off from Los Angeles uh, over the ocean in a United Airlines plane. At that time, they were all blue. Their whole motif was blue, and the ocean was blue, and the sky was blue, and that's how the song came about. And the next time I saw Miles, I suppose, was at the uh, Howard Theater and where we were playing together in Washington, D.C., and there was a joint across the alley from backstage at the Howard called Cecilia's Lounge, and everybody used to go in there and eat in between shows, and I was sitting eating with him, and I sang the song to him, and he approved that lyric. In terms of your work, your body of work, what have been some of the major influences, both on your outlook and on your, in, on your art? What have been some of the major influences in your life? Well, I'd say my father and um, Paul Robeson, Dick Durham. Dick Durham wrote The Greatest with uh, Muhammad Ali, and he was head of uh, the editor, rather, of, of the uh, Muhammad Speaks for quite a number of years. And prior to that, he was a radio writer. 
that's how I met him. I was acting on a show, a series called Destination Freedom, that was an award-winning series that he did. One half-hour script a week. He'd just take raw data from the uh, library and convert it into not just a documentary. He tried to have a little drama, uh, drama into the whole thing. Only thing was, it was impossible. I mean, how can today you'd have to have a team of 10 guys to do what he was doing? But we just didn't know that you couldn't do it. And so we <laughs> did it. And uh, so he was strongly, he strongly influenced my life politically and creatively, too, because he was an excellent writer. And uh, he, I wanted to be a writer, and I modeled myself. He was a mentor to me. Let me just remind our listeners that we're talking with Oscar Brown Jr. about his work, his life. So what about Robeson? Well, I was thinking about Here I Stand. That was his book uh, that he autographed that for me. I went, last time I saw Paul Robeson was at Ishmael Flory's house. Ishmael was in the Communist Party office when I joined up, and uh, he's always been out there. Uh, so Paul was staying, I think, staying at Ish's house, and I had just started writing. So I went over and I sang Watermelon Man and Rags and Old Iron and Brown Baby for Paul. And uh, he gave me this book and autographed it for me, and then he went to London and stayed there for years. And uh, I never saw him again. I attended his funeral. I couldn't get in. I was out in the, in the sidewalk. There were thousands of people outside the uh, church. Was there anything in particular in Robeson's philosophy that really attracted you or that really moved you? Oh, well, his whole humanism. When I was running for the state legislature in 1948 on the ticket with Henry Wallace, Paul came to Chicago and did a benefit performance for me at a youth rally we had in the small basement of a small church on 56th and Indiana. And um, I'd heard him speak through the years. I'd seen him in Othello because that came to the University of Wisconsin when I was enrolled there. But now this particular speech at this youth rally was um, he was talking about the universality of certain things like um, harmonies, uh, uh, what do you call minor harmonies among oppressed peoples. He said that the vulgar boatmen and the uh, Jewish people in Eastern Europe and the blues in, and the Welsh uh, coal miners, all of them sang in this minor tone that that seemed to be a music of oppressed peoples. And he could illustrate this beautifully as he talked. And he showed the similarities between African language and Chinese in the tonality that they use. A, a word will mean different things depending on the tone in which it's pitched in, in the speech. So he was able to illustrate all that. And his basic message was peace, was um, use your talent. Well, he used to come over to see us, uh, us being uh, a bunch of young intellectuals, writers, actors. Dick Durham was among them, Jan Kingslow, Fred Pinkert. And uh, I remember one time Harry Belafonte attended one of those meetings, but he had to come through the alley and up over the roof so that the FBI wouldn't see him and ruin his career. But uh, Paul was all, his message was use your talents for the, um, not just for personal aggrandizement, but for the benefit of your people for the benefit of peace. And um, it was always a thrill to just be in his presence. Just when he came in the room and said, hello, it was thrilling, mm -hmm. <laughs> that rich voice. And... <laughs> right. Coming off of that, you, a lot of your work has really been telling stories of the people. 
some of the stuff I know I get lost in a lot of your songs when I sit back and listen or even reading the Chicago Alley stuff. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, you paint a portrait of the lives of black people throughout the last 40 years. And then there's a universality to it, too, because there's a lot of the, the humor and irony that comes out in, in pieces that you've done on aging, pieces that you've done on your relationship with, with your son, with uh, your grandkids, all those kinds of things. And I wanted to have people listen to a little bit from a song that I think is part of that move where you, you lay out the lives of the people. You conjure up a scene and actually bring people to an understanding of what people's lives is. And that's Rags and Old Iron. And then we'll talk about it after we've heard a little bit of it. Okay. takes you right back into these uh, days when people did go around collecting rags and old iron. And mm-hmm. That's back in the alley, 51st, in, uh, between Champlain and Evans Avenue on the south side of Chicago. Those old guys who were making those cries, oh, they were not Negroes. They were not black people. These were Jews who mm-hmm. had come over from Eastern Europe. This was the story I was told by my uncle who translated for me because I'd heard them saying, I never knew what he was saying. But my uncle said, these saying rags and old iron and they're using the incantation of the temple because some of these guys had been like cantors and stuff and there was no business for them here in the United States. So they went out and sold, I mean rather bought rags and old iron and made their living that way. Boy, what a trip. Huh. I never knew that about that song, actually. I know the thing is, it, it does conjure up the life of, you know, like you're saying, you, you could pinpoint the, the place that it happened. Oh, yeah. You know, and because it happened to you, but it also, kind of, I'm sure for a lot of people, conjures up just the life in certain in neighborhoods. You know, it, it's sort of, I can think of it in my neighborhood, but I know it's also, there's particularly this, you know, a lot of black neighborhoods had street vendors going through. You actually did a song called Watermelon Man which seemed to be something similar in terms of the, the portrait of the Well, life. it came out of the alley, mm-hmm. and that started singing to me when I was just a little kid. Uh, that sounded like a song. Because the guy would go, Hey, oh, hey, we'll get you watermelon, hey, watermelon, man. Interestingly, that song, Rags and a Lion, there's a minister named Al Sampson in Chicago. One time I heard him break down that song in a way that I had never imagined it. People will translate and draw from what you've written meanings that 
sometimes more profound than you knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're supposed to just say, "Yeah, that's what I meant." <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I just he got it right. Hadn't got around to saying it yet, but <laughs> no, but I, I remember his uh, talking about the disappointments in people's lives and what it meant, and, and he went into it in a very spiritual way. It was quite an interesting hmm. analysis. Hmm. One of the things too that you've done a lot of songs, a lot of your songs have been politically charged. Mm-hmm. They're very politically charged. I mean, there's the actually the story of the Freedom Now Suite, which was an album that was actually the day it came out, it was banned in South Africa, and it was a, it was an album that actually really. I mean, you wrote a lot of the songs on there, right? The thing with Max Roach and Abby Lincoln. Well, that came about. Max and I were working on a piece called The Beat, and that was going to be a musical anthology, so to speak, of black music from Africa coming up to the current time. That was back in 1959. And we wrote several songs, Drive a Man and The Beat and uh, Freedom Day. And we were almost through with it, which took us quite a while because I, we could only work together when he came to Chicago. I wasn't traveling, and he would come and play Chicago maybe a couple of times a year, and we'd hang out and get a little more done, a little more done. So after about three years, we finally came to a huge disagreement about uh, how to end it. I was more Mal- Martin Luther King, and he was more Malcolm X. Although religion didn't have anything to do with our disagreement, it was more politically and tactically, you know, what to do. And so we fell out about that and stopped work on the beat. The next thing I heard, I got a uh, penny postcard. You remember penny postcards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got a penny postcard from Nat Hentoff. And uh, so he was asking for some biographical material on me because my lyrics were being included in a new production called Freedom Now Suite that Max and Abby were doing. By this time, they had gotten married. And so I sent him what little there was to tell of me because I hadn't done anything yet. It was just starting. But when the album came out, she, they had, there's a piece on there called Prayer, Protest, and Peace. She's screaming, he's beating the drums. Well, this was an idea that Max had had quite a little while. And in fact, I had gone down to a studio one time in Chicago to be the screamer, and he was going to beat the drums, you know. And uh, he decided for some reason that I was too elegant, that was his term, to do this number. I didn't think I was that elegant, you know, uh, elegant though I be. But uh, <laughs> you're elegant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, keep it so I can believe it, Jesus. So uh, I went up on the. L going home, you know, and that's when a song called But I Was Cool came to me based on, on that. But going back to Freedom Now Sweet, the first time I heard Prayer, Protest, and Peace, I ran out of the room. They were screaming and hollering so loud, you know, like, whoo. And what Max had done was sort of cannibalize the beat and uh, put it over into this other context. It wasn't that much uh, a protest piece as we had originally described, uh, had conceived it rather, but just an anthology. I said we were. It has its elements of, of, of protest in it because if you tell the truth about slavery, that's got to be a protest just in and of itself. But uh, it was not as uh, openly political. We insist in freedom now. That uh, kind of it didn't have. Well, even and, and when you think of Driver Man, I mean that's always been one of the songs that I thought really captured a lot of what talk about slavery and then taking it beyond that to what's what existed then and what exists today. I mean, it's still you can't listen to that song without knowing this is something that touches the heart of the existence of black people and all oppressed people in the world. Let's take a listen to a couple of pieces written by Oscar Brown Jr. off of the album We Insist Freedom Now Suite. And that album's from Max Roach, and the pieces we're going to listen to are Driver Man and Freedom Day. We'll listen to maybe a minute or so off of each song just to give you folks a sense of the work created by Oscar Brown Jr. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate. Our show today is a special rebroadcast of an interview I did with the late Oscar Brown Jr. a number of years back. Oscar was an extraordinary songwriter, jazz vocalist, storyteller, poet, playwright, and all-around human being. That first piece was Drive a Man, and the second was Freedom Day from the album We Insist, Freedom Now. And both were written by, the, the lyrics were written by Oscar Brown Jr. Let's get back to the interview now. Part of the, the question of, like you said, it's not protest song per se, but it's, it's actually there is this thing of everything that you say, when you bring this out, you've created a portrait of the people's lives. Now, what made you think, one, that you should do that, and two, that people would be into, into hearing that? Well, the answer to the latter part, that's a hope. You never know exactly how that's going to come out, particularly if there's no record of that kind of uh, material out there. What made me want to create that kind of material, I guess, is just my political background, uh, my upbringing. Having talked to people like Robeson, having lived, you know, as my father's son, it uh, I always wanted to say something with what I was writing, not to just be frivolous, uh, you know, for the sake of, of making a noise. I had an interesting little story that got nothing much to do with this. I have this four-year-old <laughs> granddaughter. And her name is Kayla, Kayla Hunter. And Kayla is the smartest person I ever met. So we were talking the other day. I said, Kayla, you seem to wet your pants again. And, you know, she said, yes. I, she, she said, it was an accident. I said, well, it keeps happening. It can't be an accident. She said, you just don't know anything about potty training. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> so that brought me to the realization, I don't know that much about most of the stuff I talk about. <laughs> but no, people don't listen enough to notice, you know, because they, they're too busy thinking of what they're going to say in response to what you're saying that they're not listening to. One of the things that happens to me when I, when I hear you telling that story, first thing I thought was, oh, God, he's going to start doing research on potty training. I'm going to get a note or a phone call saying oh, no, no, no. he's got all that covered and he's got a treatise on it now. What really comes to mind is that you take a lot of subjects that you wouldn't necessarily think that people are going to write songs about. You observe a lot. That's what I'm trying to say is that you observe a lot about people's lives, about people, the way they interact with one another. And in that there, you have your son asking you who could be any son. Mm-hmm. You know, And there's a whole, whole lot of people that have just really grabbed onto that song because it, it grabs that inquisitiveness, that, that curiosity, and that humanness that's present in all these little kids where everything's stretched up for you and you want it. And you're asking, and you're confronted with that. You got to explain this to them. But also things like to, with your granddaughter. I read a letter once that you had written to Bobo, to your son. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how they used to play baseball or something and, and everybody used to yell first, second, and he would always yell last. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because he knew he could get in the game. He was too little. <laughs> he didn't have a shot at being any of the other number last that had to be a last <laughs> I thought that was one of the things that's really that really again has marked your work and i really want to talk a little bit more oscar about the the politics the politics in your songs the the political leanings your songs and i wanted to play a little bit from 40 acres and a mule which captures i think both the politics and the humor and as the song ends with uh, i'm only serious it is a very serious song we'll talk we'll listen to that and then come back and talk about it a little bit You know, I always enjoy playing Washington, D.C. It makes me feel not only among friends, but close to the seat of government. Provides me with an opportunity to deliver, for example, this, this open letter pressed into my hands by a man on my street. If I am not mistaken, I once read back during that short spell I spent in school where every slave set free was supposed to get for slaving 40 acres and a mule. Now, you know, telling how much work was done by my ancestors under slavery's rule, but Show as hell, the total's got to run at least uh, 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> now, I'm not saying this to see folks sweat, because I'm not bitter, neither am I cruel. But ain't nobody paid for slavery yet about my 40 acres and my mule. We had a promise. That was taken back. And when we hollered, it was her shmiku. Well, me, I'm being rowdy, hot, and black. I want my 40 acres and my mule. Don't tell All me right, Oscar, 40 acres and a mule. Up, What's up man? with that? Well, that's, of course, history. Uh, there was a, a bill that was introduced into the Congress. Never got out of committee, I think. Um, but... Uh, 
I heard about that and um, decided to make a poem of it. I used the iambic pentameter. That's because um, I had discovered that that was not only the um, meter that Shakespeare used in his sonnets and in his plays, but it was also the meter of the blues. So that gave it a kind of classical proportion that was really right down my alley. So I was using that uh, that meter in that piece. Presented it at the um, Waldorf Astoria. I played the Waldorf Astoria once uh, with Nancy Wilson. And uh, management asked me to take it out of the act. And so I did one night. Then I put it back and they said, we told you. <laughs> did they ever, why did they want you to take it out of the act? What they say? I think they suspected that they were the ones who owed the 40 acres and they did not want to be done. <laughs> they had a whole herd of mules and they knew exactly how they were. <laughs> not about to listen to that. How'd you get my number? Well, you know, one of the things, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you is, did you ever have, you know, because you did that, you did another song, which, as I understand it, was one of the songs that went to the top 20 or was a Climbing with a Bullet and was the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. I read somewhere where you said that was actually physically removed from stores. I was told that mm-hmm. I was, it was, uh, from radio station in Washington D.C. It started off; it got to be a hit in Washington and where Atlanta, somewhat at the same time. And they were really about to ship the thing back. You know, if they didn't sell a certain number of records, then they send them back to the manufacturer. And I think they were on their way in the warehouse, and they had to go and unpack them and bring them out because some guy played it and started getting this big response. But uh, then he told me that uh, somebody came in and physically took the record out of the uh, out of the radio station, and the record company said that they got a complaint from somebody about my using the Lone Ranger and that uh, they were withdrawing the album from the uh, market too. It was a single by that time. Mm-hmm. They were withdrawing it from the. I don't think that was legal, but it was just BS. Well, that's all of this. Did you did you suffer a lot in terms of this repression? In terms of actually open repression that you know of? Oh, um, suffer uh, is um, not exactly the word that I would. I've encountered it, and. Um, been, you know, beat down a couple of times by a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, for See, when I started out, I was doing like Brown Baby. Now, Brown Baby is a lullaby. That was considered controversial. You didn't have to be saying off the pig. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate. We're going to take a short break and be right back with Oscar Brown Jr. I want you to live 
by the justice code I want you to walk down the freedom road brown baby Welcome back. You're listening to the Michael Slate show and that was Oscar Brown Jr with Brown Baby. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. You're listening to a rebroadcast of an interview with Oscar before his death in 2005. Let's rejoin the conversation now. What they really, really didn't want you to say was something that was going to create sympathy, empathy, that was going to create a humanistic feeling between people. That was more dangerous by the standards of the people who were running the broadcast industry at that time. And at this time, even worse, that uh, that was what was considered controversial. The most uh, subversive things I've done has been to work with kids in the projects and try to work with a gang in the streets and try and get them to have a revolutionary attitude about themselves, about their plight, to have them stop fighting each other like the Crips and the Bloods did, the Hispanic gangs. You guys are being divided and conquered, and you don't see that. And as they began to see it, it turned out that the police didn't want the gang to go good. So 30 years later, I wrote a song. It was a gang gone good in a real bad hood. Police never believed they would. Got to be busted, not to be trusted, they say. Say they. And that was the attitude, was to stop this, to not let this out. Let's talk about this a little bit, because you've written, in addition to this, you've written operas. And interesting enough, in iambic pentameter, too, right? Yeah. And you've written theater, a lot of That plays. was a collaboration with Lonnie Levester, his, his music. I did the lyric. What, what was that? A Slave Story, the one you're talking mm-hmm. about. It started out being called Slave Story, and uh, it's gone through several evolutions of name, mm-hmm. latest being Creasy. That's the heroine's name. I wanted you to actually talk a little bit about those operas and what made you decide to work in a form like opera. Well, I heard Puccini. Actually, I was uh, listening to the radio, and hey, shoot, hang on, I'd like to get off into something like that. But I didn't have the, the musicianship to write an opera. But I told that to Lonnie Levister, who was a classically trained musician, a very gifted man. He was in New York at the time, and we started working on it, and we got quite a way along with it. In fact, we finished it. It took several years to do. But it was done, as you uh, said, in iambic pentameter, rhymed quatrains. Interesting story. I the first time I undertook that, we had had the idea and we'd been working on the songs, but now I decided I was going to try and put this in iambic pentameter. So it'd take me, it would take me all day long, 12 hours to do one page. And uh, I was just not even coming out of the room because they'd send in my meals. You know, I had to go to the restroom a couple of times, but otherwise, man, I was in that. And I did it seven days a week for a whole month, 30 straight days of 12-hour days working on this thing. And I finally had the first scenes together and I was going to the Democratic Convention. I was asked to entertain at this Democratic Convention when the year when uh, Goldwater was running. And on my way to Atlantic City I passed through Philadelphia and lost the script. Both copies of the script in the airport. Man, when I got to Philadelphia I mean to Atlantic City and realized that I just lay on the bed and tried to die. But then as I was dying I realized that I remembered every page, and it would take me so long, it was so hard to do, that I had a third carbon copy in my head. And with that, I was relieved that I hadn't really lost it because I still had it. And when I got back to Philadelphia in the train station, I guess it was, anyway, this red cap had found my script. So I, I got it back. You've worked in opera, you worked in theater. And there's two plays in particular I wanted to talk, well, three, actually. 
briefly on Mr. Kicks and sort of the there's a there's an interesting part about that, including how you're the first probably the first artist who's ever had a, a law specifically enacted because of what they did to to get their play produced. And then I wanted to also move into from there a brief thing on Opportunity Knocks mm-hmm. and then on Buck White. Well, you know, life has sort of caught me by surprise. And so it certainly did uh, this offer from Dave Garraway to come on to today's show to promote Kicks and Company. That was a kind of a promotional stunt nobody would have thought And Kicks and Company was, a, was... It was a musical on which I had been working for a couple of years. It grew out of... Uh, a uh, friend told me that in this sort of dormitory dwelling where he was living, that the, the main thing was kicks. Everybody was just looking for kicks. So I went out on a New Year's Eve party, and that next morning, tore up. I came home, and I started writing this. I met this character, Mr. Kicks, and he evolved into a musical that eventually wound up raising 400000 bucks, passing through the Today Show where Dave Garraway offered us the whole two hours to raise money for the for this production. And it wound up standing up in Chicago and dropping all $400,000 in about a week, after which I had, I had just started. Now I was, I had, I was a has-been. I hadn't even been in the business but a nine months, <laughs> and I had to have a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things they did, too, one of, the, one of the things helping your comeback was they actually did pass a law saying that you were no longer... Well, that no more could they raise money mm-hmm. that way by offering stock in a production on the air. Woody King Jr., who was a successful producer in New York at the Federal Theater, uh, he told me that about this law. He said that all the young producers in New York, when they saw that, they said, holy smoke, now this is not my doing. I'm just the writer. The way it came about was I had been performing at the Village Vanguard, my first engagement in show business. And while we were doing that, we were also raising money for this first musical, Kicks and Company. And the agents, I was quite well received. And the agents were trying to show me what they could do because they wanted to sign me up. And Joe Glazer, I think, was one of the big agents, ABC agency. He got me on the Today Show, and I did Brown Baby and Rags and the Lion and that dare. Dave Garraway was so impressed, he brought his daughter to the Vanguard to see my act. And when I did songs from Kicks and Company, he offered to turn over the whole two hours to, uh, I think it might have got him fired because he, he I think they, that was going a little far. Mm-hmm. As I was working with the writers, I remember a guy named Rick Ballard was one of the writers, and Rick asked me, he said, did Dave read this play? I said, no. He said, I didn't think so. <laughs> because the play was saying, you know, we don't want to get integrated into a burning house. Raven in the Sun had been quite successful just prior to that. In fact, it was uh, Lorraine Hasbury's husband who was the producer of Kicks and Company. But Raisin was uh, like, you know, wanting integration. It was talking about upward social mobility moving into the suburbs as an achievement. And Kicks and Company was saying, we don't want to be you know, a part of the same old pie. And so it was a little more revolutionary than uh, America was. Well, let's, let's move for. into that, off of that, move into Buck White. And there were some pretty significant things about Buck White, including the, some of the songs that were in it. Well, thank you, Michael. Mm-hmm. That's nice of you to say that. <laughs> uh, Buck White started out as a straight play, it was a writer's workshop piece in Watts. Following the Watts riots, Bud Schulberg from here in Hollywood started a writer's workshop. 
And a man named Joseph Dolan Tuati uh, came to that workshop with a little sketch that he had done that, that uh, revolved around a character called Big Time Buck White. And the actors who, with whom he was working began to improvise, pretty much drawing the characters out of themselves. So there was the hunter and jibe and weasel, and these cats who were playing the parts were pretty much that in life. And they put the show on. Uh, they got a producer, Zev Buffman, and they put the show on at the Coronet Theater here in Los Angeles. And I saw it, and I just fell out laughing. These were some characters, boy, I had known all my life. And as a result, I went home and started doing little character revealing songs about some of these characters in that. And again, you know, most of the things that happen, you know, there's some some fortuitous event. Somebody was going to produce Big Time Buck White in San Francisco, called Bill Cosby to see if he would be interested in it. I had a friend in Bill Cosby's office who knew Bill Cosby wasn't going to be interested in it, but knew that I would. And so I wound up flying to San Francisco and talking them into, instead of doing the straight play, to doing this musical that I had developed. And that ran there in, in, in the area for about six or eight months. After which I went down and talked to Zev Buffman, who had the grand rights. I only had the rights in the San Francisco Bay Area. So he said, well, he would give me the grand rights, but he wanted to write a first refusal to produce in Hollywood or on Broadway. Dum! Broadway. <laughs> oh, so now what do we need to go on Broadway? Uh, I thought you'd never mention it. So he said, you know, star. And at that time, my uncle passed away in Chicago, and I flew back to his funeral, and I knew Ali. So I went over to Ali's house. He wasn't allowed to fight. He was just living in a little bungalow with the World Heavyweight Championship belt in there. So he wasn't making that much money and everything, so I was able to make him an offer he couldn't refuse. He was dynamite, I thought. And it was, the whole experience was great for me. We played the show with Ted Ross and Big Black as the title characters in San Francisco. But now in New York, we had Ali. I was able to try out some of my ideas and do stuff on Broadway. And, you know, I found out I belonged there. I mean, I, I was not over my head at all. And the... the People with whom I was working, who were all professionals, were quite complimentary and cooperative, so that gave me a great deal of uh, satisfaction and sense of accomplishment. I want to remind people that you're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and I'm your host, Michael Slate. Today we're featuring a special rebroadcast of an interview I did with the late Oscar Brown Jr. back before his death in 2005. But one of the things that always tripped me out was the song that you had Ali singing. The song that you wrote for Ali, this is a time when they had taken his belt away and he was being vilified in the press. The Vietnam War is raging. Black people all over the country are rising up in ghettos and saying, we're not going to live like this anymore. And you had Ali come down the stage. And I remember you describing it to me once. You had kettle drums banging, you had fireworks going off, and you had Ali come on the stage and sing, it's all over now, mighty whitey. What was yeah. the story behind that? Madness. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, the critics weren't real happy. <laughs> well, um, it, it, they had been pretty happy in San Francisco. We had run the show, as I said, there for quite a little while, and now we transferred to New York. And, yeah, Buck White, he doesn't make his entrance until the, the end of the first act, and he would enter through the audience. And I was able to get them to put lights up in the ceiling way up high there and have fireworks going boom, and the thing would light up, and then the, the timpani was playing. And on one night, the, the first time we actually ran the show, we it was a Monday night, and we invited all the gypsies, all the uh, actors from all the shows that were dark on Monday, free of charge, because we wanted Ali to have a chance to have an audience, a live audience, before we opened. 
So this was news. The television station had cameras there, and the guy was backing down the aisle in front of the aisle. He put his camera, and behind him was a power pack of lights, you know. So I added that to the show, too. I could do whatever I wanted, you know, make it exciting. And it was really a marvelous, you know, moment in the theater to me when uh, Buck White came in. And then people would look, and this was actually Muhammad Ali doing this. And there was so much combined with that. If you could just tell people what the song was about. Oh, and where the title came from. It came from, it was originally titled Word from Watts. It came out of the Watts riot. And a reporter from Time Magazine had been there and told me he's been in this uh, supermarket. And the brothers had come in there and started stealing stuff. And he said, Mighty Whitey didn't do a damn thing. So I started writing this song. We see you looking cruel with your cold blue eyes. You think we're just your fools, you think you're all wise. We see you wallowing in your greed while we are down here in dire need. But that's all over now, mighty whitey, all over now. Ali loved that song. I can imagine. That's how I got him to you know, want to do that in the first place. I can imagine the impact of that song had actually been out broadly in society that would have had a tremendous impact. Yeah, well, of course thing. it would right. have been, so that's why it closed <laughs> exactly. after six days. Right. They made a quick decision on that one. Oh, no-brainer. <laughs> well, one thing, um, we got about a minute to talk about, is it Opportunity Knocks? Yeah. One of the things that you said there was that the most important thing you learned out of that was that actually the people, the basic people in black neighborhoods had the skills, the, the talent, the ability to come forward and produce tremendously beautiful things. Why don't the you black, tell us a little bit about that? Well, the yeah, the black bottom. That's where that's where it is. I just was um, riding through that neighborhood, sort of dreaming that they should have some kind of a self-help organization because the neighborhood had turned black. But these kids were it was going down. So um, I got an opportunity to work with these young people. And I was offering to do a show for them to help them raise money and stop extorting and doing some of the illegal stuff they were doing. So they said, well, look, some of us got talent. Can we be in the show? So I said, oh, God, let me see what you got. And they had so much that the idea of doing a show for them was replaced by doing a show with them. And that was called Opportunity, Please Knock. And it was just a whole group of kids who were marvelous. We had found a, a great number of kids and like Two years ago, we brought back some of them and put together a show, Opportunity Knocks Again, with 30 of them. And hearing them sing those old songs, those old doo-wop songs now with whole choir. Wow, that was really Amazing. exciting. Somebody's going to do that. You know, we couldn't. Uh, again, the, the city won't take yes for an answer. <laughs> Real quick, you continue to work. These uh, Shakespearean sonnets that I wish we had actually gotten a chance to talk a little bit more about. Yeah. But we'll have to have you back to do that. Also, you've been on, on the Deaf Poetry Jam. Again, impacting a whole new generation of artists, of rebellious youth, of people just looking to use their art in the service of the people. And you performed a poem there that just blew me away and it blew the audience away. I wanted to go out with that poem. Oscar, how about it? I apologize for being black for all I am plus all I lack. Please, sir, please, ma'am, give me some slack because I apologize. I apologize for being poor, for being sick and tired and so. Since I ain't slick and don't know the score, I must apologize. I apologize because I bear resemblances black people share. Thick lips, flat nose, and nappy hair. Yes, I apologize. I apologize for how I look for all the lows and blows I took on those Lord knows I'd close the book as I apologize. I apologize for all I gave for letting you make me your slave and going to my early grave. I do apologize. I apologize and curse my kind for being fooled, for being blind, for being rude and in a 
fine, I must apologize. I apologize and curse my fate for being slow, for being late, because I know it's me you hate. Why not apologize? I apologize and tip my hat, because you so rich and free and fat, son of a bitch, that's where it's at. And I apologize. Oscar Brown Jr., there's a whole lot of Oscar in that poem. I'll never forget the first time I heard it. It just chilled me to the bone. That's right, a whole lot of Oscar in this poem. And that's the Oscar that I always hold dear. A man who was could make you laugh in a minute, could make you cry the next. A man who always stood with you shoulder to shoulder to stand up against injustice. And a man who lived his life hoping for a better world and hoping that what he did could contribute to bringing that better world into being. You know, and that's, as I said in the beginning of the show, that's what we uh, at this show are actually striving to do. We look around at the world today and we understand that it cries out for radical change. And that kind of radically changed world depends on us, each and every one of us, and what we do to bring it about. I'm Michael Slate, and you've been listening to The Michael Slate Show. If you want to write to me, you can at michaelslate at redfuture.com. Again, that's michaelslate at redfuture.com. I want to thank Age for his production assistance in the show today, and I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. We're going to go out with a song that's uh, always been one of my favorites of Oscars. It's a song that he considered his penultimate condemnation of capitalism. That song is called The Snake. On her way to work one morning down the path alongside the lake A tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Poor thing, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. Take me in, tender woman, take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, tender woman, sighed the snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a comforter of silk And laid him by the fireside with some honey and some milk She hurried home from work that night and soon as she arrived She found that pretty snake she'd taken in had been revived Take me in, tender woman, take me in for heaven's sake him to her bosom you're so beautiful she cried but if i hadn't brought you in by now you might have died she stroked his pretty skin again and kissed and held him tight instead of saying thanks the snake gave her a vicious bite take me in tender wound take me in for heaven's sake take me You knew darn well I was a snake before you took 